Hey everyone, welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. And this is episode 130. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. <laughs> so Gordon, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, you mentioned uh, that some people had written in and uh, made some comments uh, about the podcast and specifically uh, asked if we could address the issue of a product called Dark Table. Right. And we want, by the way, to the folks who do write in and offer us compliments, we really do appreciate it because to a large extent, we're sitting in a bit of a vacuum <laughs> and we really hope that somebody's listening. <laughs> or not. Or not. <laughs> so, uh, when you mentioned this to me, I was kind of intrigued because a I know nothing about Ducktable, and you mentioned that it was open source uh, software, which is a word I've heard before, and I had the impression that it basically is uh, a, a program or a system whereby the instruction sets or the programming languages made freely available to the general population. Yeah, that's actually a pretty clear assertion. So the whole idea behind open source is that unlike traditional commercial software, the source code for the application is publicly available. And that means anybody can use the source code however they wish. There is no specific copyright assigned to the source code. And that means anybody can work with the source code, can make modifications to it, can create modules for it, can create extensions for it. Most open source typically starts with a person or small team. But one of the benefits to it is it can attract other developers from very different parts of the world with very different experience levels who share a common goal in order to create interesting and powerful software without being in the constraints or physical limitations of a single company. Uh, most people, when they hear open source, tend to think of operating systems. The Linux operating system and its myriad different flavors is a great example of open source. That source code is publicly available. And it means that developers can use it, can modify it, can build their own, what we in the Linux world call distributions, that serve a specific need. Now that could be through user interface. It could be built to run mostly backend processes with not a lot of front-end user interface, or it could be the other way around. Very, very simple user interface that conceals a lot of the complexity from the casual user. And open source software is, doesn't have a cost associated with the software itself, although the makers of applications in the open source world or operating systems may offer a chargeable support infrastructure. 
So if you need help or you have questions, you can certainly post those to the open source community and whatever channel the application lives in. But if you want to go back to the builder, if you will, sometimes there's going to be a support initiative around that. Now we do see some commercialized open source offerings, most often in the Linux space, Zusa Linux, Red Hat Linux. These are commercial Linux developments that have a big infrastructure behind them. Either Zusa itself or in the, now in the case of Red Hat, IBM, who acquired Red Hat so they can offer it to their commercial customers under a classical IBM support reliability framework and infrastructure. What we're talking about here in the case of tools like Darktable is a developer or set of developers, and pardon my ignorance for not knowing, who looked at the photo editing space, saw some things that they liked, and wanted to build something that delivered the same types of services, but that wasn't based on commercially available off-the-shelf software or traditional subscription software. In the case of Darktable, I think the name tells us a little bit, and certainly the look tells us more when we run it. Uh, I think this is built as a Lightroom alternative. That was the impression that I got from it. And the benefit, one of the other benefits that we get is that in open source, generally you get the source code and you have to compile it yourself to run on your whatever operating system and computer you have. What the developers of Darktable have done is they make that available. But they've also created packages, installable packages, where you don't have to know anything about com compiling software, where you don't have to own a compiler. They've pre-built them. Okay. So if I'm understanding you right, uh, what you're saying is, you say, all right, I'm going to use this program, and uh, you get the basic program, and then you, they ask you, uh, what system are you running it on? And you say, uh, PC or Mac or whatever, and then they'll say, all right, go to package A, which will allow this program to run on your machine, and you install them both, and then it exactly goes right. from there. So in the case of Darktable, there is a DMG. Okay. Mountable volume, like any other Apple pro Macintosh program. You double-click it, and you run the installer. Okay. In the case of the Windows environment, it's an EXE file. It's right. an EXE installer. So from a user perspective, it's no more difficult to install. Okay. No more difficult to configure than any of the commercial products. Okay. That is a change that's happened over the last 10 years or so, generally in open source, whereas in the past it was always, not always, but mostly built to run on open source operating systems. Okay. Now these developers are saying, okay, well, we would like a wider audience, so we will prepackage them ready to go on Windows, ready to go on Macintosh, as well as ready to go on Linux. Okay. Makes sense. It does. 
Because at the source, it's the same code. It's only the execution wrapper right. that's going to mm-hmm. differ. Right. It works out pretty well. Now, when we look at Darktable, and I have installed it, I confess, though, I have less than eight hours experience with this product. Am I going to miss stuff? Absolutely. So what I miss is my fault. No fault of the developers at all. But it looks very much, not exactly, because somebody would get a lawyer involved, but it looks a lot like Lightroom. So you have, let's call it, something that looks like the library. Yes. And you have something that looks like the develop module. Yes. And you can add additional modules for slideshow and the web and all that kind of stuff. Right. Just as you have in Lightroom. The big difference is, as best I can tell, you don't have a proprietary catalog as you do in Lightroom. Yes. So the the, the stuff that I watched on it, because uh, I, I, like I said, I know nothing about it. But uh, the stuff I watched on it, uh, they, they made a big issue out of the fact that you did not have a catalog. But they did say that to use the images in Darktable, you had to import them into Darktable. And from my simplistic point of view, I thought to myself, well, if you're importing the images, are you not in your own way creating a catalog? That's a great question because I had the same question. So in my test, I added images to Darktable. And when I exited Darktable and went back in, all the edits I had done were still there. Right. Well, they didn't change the raw source file. So where's that data stored? Okay, it's not a catalog. It's got to be someplace. And if I moved the image, the original image, which we know from Lightroom, you do that. Mm-hmm. That's a fatal disaster. Right. It didn't work. I'd lost the image again. Right. So I actually care less whether there's a catalog or not. Yes. The point of fact is you don't lose your edits. And, and as long as you leave your source files where they are, you're in good stead. Right. Now, I did not see if there was a copy option, which would make a copy of the raw file in another location, Right. which we have in Lightroom. I didn't notice. Okay. Because I chose the add option. Sure. And, and the reason for that is because you and I have encountered, certainly recently, a lot of folks who are very concerned about their folder layout. And we talked about this a couple of episodes yes. ago. I want my folders the way I want them. Okay, cool. Go ahead, do that. When we add either to Lightroom or to Darktable, your f- pictures are in whatever folders you want. And again, it's just referencing that location. Sure. Uh, it certainly didn't build a, a giant amount of extra data. And I tested it on a Windows machine because that was what was available at the time. Right. I didn't, I didn't find 
that I was losing anything in terms of space or performance, it actually seemed to work pretty well. Mm-hmm. But it is different. Now, when you watch the video, I think one of the things that you said, the assertion is that it's very simple, but you found it more complicated. I did. And I don't know if that's because of acclimatization to the offering, but I too found it incredibly powerful. In fact, doing some things that Lightroom doesn't do. Yes, and they did mention that. Um, which I think is cool. Well, they said, she said, even Photoshop uh, doesn't do, but that's we'll get to that momentarily, I think. And, but I cannot say that I found it easy. In fairness, I didn't watch any of the tutorials. Now, I've invested years in Lightroom. Right. I know Lightroom pretty well. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I know it pretty well. I haven't given Darktable anywhere near that level of my time and my attention. Right. I'm quite confident that it does all the things that it does. Mm-hmm. But for me and my edit workflow, there was a learning curve. Yes. Because what I would do normally, in the order I would do it, it is different simply by the way the program is designed. Right. When I when I looked what was watching it, I uh, and some of the things that he was suggesting uh, you can, you can do or showing you how to do, I I was struck with the similarity with the way uh, I think Skylum uh, does things. You've got a bunch of filters that you apply the filters in various places. You can run down a list of them, pick what you want to do. And I had the impression I was working with modifiable presets. Well, there's definitely a strong, I wouldn't say it's a preset focus, but there's an orientation to be able to use presets. Right. More so than I would say native in Lightroom. Although, goodness knows, there are 8 billion presets that you can purchase for Lightroom of dubious and sometimes questionable value. I, th- I think their approach here is a little different because my sense, my gut check, is that the guys and ladies who wrote this are really serious photographers and editors. Right. I don't think that they are lay people. They know what they want, and they've built software to do those things. And sometimes the methodology for doing those things may be a bit more convoluted than a product like Lightroom is built for. And Adobe understands that the majority of Lightroom users aren't going to go down a deep technical rat hole. They want to do things simply and not spend a lot of time on it. My sense from Darktable is that a preset there is really a long series of instructions and processes that you would apply not to an entire group of photos, but a process map that you would do for the same type of images. Mm -hmm. In that, my opinion only, that's a useful preset. Whereas some of the Lightroom presets that we see, 
make all the highlights yes, orange they, and all the shadows they, blue. Yeah. That's just, to me, that's just useless crap. Um, I think one of the benefits that we'll see in open source software is that other people can come along and add to it. The challenge with that is there is no governing body to say this is valid. Right. And and that, I have to say, struck me uh, again that if the source is available and you can modify it the way you think it should be modified, and if you don't have a lot of experience in doing that, uh, you could, at least to my simplest thinking, uh, sort of scramble the entire process, basically. It can happen, and that is a... And, and that can be a do- downside to open source. My experience in working with the open source community is when I was at Novell, we we were part of it because right. we held Zusa Linux at the time, is that that community is very open, but also very, very good at self-policing. Okay. You know, so if somebody puts in a piece of code and it breaks something, others will come along and say, okay, I think you're trying to do this. This didn't work. We're going to take that out. Maybe consider this option. It's a much more community-oriented development. It's certainly okay. not hostile in in the general sense. But yes, there is the possibility of breakage. And that is a potential downside. And because there isn't a single source to go to, yes, it's open. Right. There isn't that one but, throat to choke. Said, if there is a policing system who can pick up the fact that somebody has uh, introduced something that is detrimental, then then that makes it valid. It does. It does. And if we look at the way open source software like Darktable is delivered, it's delivered through typically a .org, and that means that there is some organization of some kind okay. that is going through the code and making sure that the compiled versions are going to work. But there isn't a guarantee of that. And so there could be bugs. Oh, but wait. Yes, well, yes. <laughs> we may have seen bugs in commercial <laughs> software before. Yes, that doesn't, that doesn't preclude anything. <laughs> no names to be mentioned. Uh, so fundamentally, I mean, it does what they say it will do. From a user perspective, for me, coming new to it, there's a learning curve. Mm-hmm. Do I think I could do the things that I need to do? Absolutely. My question is, what's the value to me of going through this relearning process? Well, I think the fundamental value is there's no cost. Right. Yes, I would give up on Adobe support. But with great respect, my experience with Adobe support is that those are two words that don't go together. <laughs> They are an oxymoron on their own. And certainly in the support work that I do, you know, for our club and for Kelby One, that's the general consensus. Right. So can you say it's bad? I don't know if it's necessarily bad. It's certainly potentially consistent. So my question is, do I do I need to save the what is it, $15, $16 a month Canadian now? How about that, yeah. Um, to not have Lightroom and Photoshop 
and to have this very good software with a much smaller user base and fewer people to talk to. Right. If I have questions or tutorials, if I want to learn something, my number of assets that I can call on is considerably reduced. Right. But I would expect then that in something like this, there would be a good community-based support system who would answer your questions. And that would be accurate. The forums are very much community-driven. Right. They're not sponsored by a manufacturer. Okay. And as a consequence, they tend to be clearer. You have a lot less censorship. Someone can call something bad if they wish and expect to be challenged right. if someone else thinks they're wrong. Not necessarily in a you know, derogatory, trollish, social media kind of way, but it's a fair and open exchange of ideas. Right. Now, the question that anyone who's bought commercial software has ever done is, okay, that sounds like a lot of work for some people. Why would they bother doing it? Mm-hmm. That's um, crossed my mind, yeah. And that's a personal motivational decision. Okay. They choose to, to go open source. They don't expect to generate a bunch of income directly from the writing of the code, although they may build a support infrastructure. They may build proprietary and chargeable add-ins. Right. Um, but it's really a very different culture. Um, the people who develop an open source, they're not the big commercial software developers. They're not expecting to make a fortune right. off a piece of software. Uh, I find it, it's a fascinating community because they build some amazing stuff. And they do things quickly without constraint. And because there's this massive, relatively massive number of potential partners in development, problems get solved more quickly okay. than they do when it's a tight group in a single building. Because we know in any, in any job, if you're all working within the same construct, you all take on the same constraints. Yeah. I know that when we were doing Linux, we were regularly impressed by how quickly change could be brought about. Just say, what if? And somebody would say, that's an interesting idea. Instead of having meetings for 12 months, they go build it. Right. And it may have been good, it may have needed refinement, but it's a very different software approach. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, so long as somebody is looking at the final source to try to ensure that it's not going to cause damage or become a security risk or that sort of thing. Right. And in the, the case of Darktable, I think that they are. Okay. The, the other thing that um, uh, I, I noticed in the video is there was uh, f uh, uh, f references to uh, if you wanted to do something that was beyond the scope of open source, uh, similar to 
okay, I can't do this in Lightroom. And I use Lightroom because, uh, as an example, because that's what I use. I don't know the others. Uh, in Lightroom, you say, all right, well, the next step now is to take this to Photoshop for mm -hmm. the advanced stuff. And the, the references kept being made to a program called GIMP, which I know nothing about, but right. I got the impression was maybe similar to Photoshop. So the GIMP, the, the program, the open source program, and yes. it is open source, has been around for a really long time. It is, I think, afflicted with a sad name because the original designers, the GIMP is the Graphic Image Manipulation Program. Right. It's exactly what it does. It's a pixel-based editor. If that smells like Photoshop, you'd be right. Unfortunately, there exists this guy called Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> who made okay. this movie that created in the minds of many people a vision of a gimp. Right. And I had opportunity to meet with people who worked on the GIMP. That was absolutely not their intent right. to be associated with somebody in a leather, leather bondage suit. Right. The GIMP is massively powerful. Right. Can it do everything that Photoshop does? I honestly don't know. I haven't looked at it in six or eight years. But back then, yeah, it could do all the things that I, as a photographer, needed to do in Photoshop. Right. It may have done more, but I'm not a graphic designer. I'm not a graphic artist. And I know the GIMP would do those things, just as Photoshop would do those things. Right. But I'm incapable of making a side-by-side -side comparison. But as a graphic editor, it's super powerful, and yeah, it's no cost to you. To you, okay. Again, so the GIMP, I think, just my opinion, absolutely could be wrong, but it's my opinion. If I were looking to a no-slash-low-cost-to-me alternative to Lightroom Photoshop, I could consider Darktable and the GIMP. Right. Now, whether I run Linux or Windows or Macintosh, there are builds available for all those platforms. Will the user interface be different from what I know? Absolutely. Sure. Will there be some level of learning curve? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, even over the years of Photoshop, we see evidence of six different ways to do the same thing. Right, and and to keep adding to them or removing other ways and changing them so the learning curve doesn't go away. It just continues going up. Right on. <coughs> Whereas with what I have found more in open sources, there appears sometimes to be less demand to remain backward compatible to old services that don't apply anymore. Right. And so services may vanish to be replaced by something else, but the user interface to get to those services, at least the doorway, doesn't change. But we know that, the, as an example in Photoshop, I'm not saying it's wrong, it's simply a what's so. 
we have now the ability to do pixel level editing that is non-destructive. Right. But earlier versions of Photoshop didn't have that. That was pixel based ed editing was highly destructive and you didn't have another option. So good on Adobe for moving the arrow on that, but they also made a business decision to leave the old stuff in. Right. And I can't say that's good or bad. I'm not them. But that do does sometimes create some confusion for people. You know, they pick up an old book or they watch an old YouTube video and they be maybe using learning to use a tool that has been superseded two or three times mm -hmm. because they are constantly innovating. Right. Now, one of the things I think that has benefited commercial software by going to subscription as opposed to giant release every two years is it now can be more like open source and that you can get small changes out much more quickly. Okay. So we see, for example, in Lightroom and Photoshop that we're getting new releases all the time, all the time. And that's similar to open source. Right. So it seems like the, the mindset of the different systems, the open system versus a tightly controlled system seems to be converging at the vanishing point, perhaps? I, I don't know, but certainly they appear to be using the best of each other's worlds. And this is a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Okay, perfect. I think it's a very good thing. So, so if these people are doing this, are others doing something similar? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, for example, if you... Now, I know you're an, a Macintosh user. Yes. And you use pages and numbers. Yes. And they're great pieces of software. But they only run on Macintosh. Yep. So, they haven't they haven't successfully engendered enthusiasm in the non-Macintosh world, right? Mm -hmm. We could say that the de facto standard for document processing is Word. Yes. We could say the de facto standard for spreadsheets is Excel. Mm -hmm. Now, pages and numbers can deal with those formats, yep. but they are different software. Yes. And there isn't a pages or a numbers that runs on Windows, right? Mm -hmm. Consider in the open source world, there is this entity called OpenOffice that reads and writes like numbers and pages, all the Microsoft formats, but also will write in what's called the open document format. Mm -hmm. And OpenOffice <laughs> runs on Linux, it runs on Windows, and it runs on Macintosh. Okay. And feature for feature, it's really, really good. The user interface is a little different. Right. And so uptake on it it has not been as great particularly in north america it's more popular in europe than it is in north america for whatever reason but it may also be the reason why we've seen the cost of microsoft office you know drop to around a hundred dollars for the home the family pack right. which is good for five computers in your home from where it used to it be used to be Hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Right. One of the things that I, I liked about Macintosh when I started is I said, oh, look at what I'm getting with this. Yeah. Yeah, I am paying more up front, but I'm not buying a bunch of software 
before I can make my computer work. Absolutely true. And I think that that was always, you know, one of Apple's goals. Make the thing functional out of the box. Right. Now, Microsoft's got a different business problem to deal with. But they've made Office very attractive for anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you go to Starbucks with any kind of regularity, you're paying for your office license for your whole family <laughs> several right. times over in the right. course of a year. I'm not dissing Starbucks, but that's just the reality of any of these fancy coffee shops. Right. Uh, however, you do have an option. You have open office, open source software. The difference is there's no advertising for it. Okay. So you buy Macintosh, you find out about all this great software that comes. Oh yeah, constantly. You know, like it's got an incredible video editor. It's got an incredible audio editor. It's got a great word processor. It's got a great spreadsheet. It's got what I think is still the best piece of presentation software on the planet in Keynote. But I will find that out when I buy a Macintosh. Right. If I buy a Windows machine, I'm going to get a lot of hints from Microsoft that I probably want to look at Office. Mm-hmm. And I know Office is a fine product. We use it in oh, the business uh, all the time. Yeah. It's a great set of tools. There's nobody out there telling me about open office. There is no giant proponent of it other than the open source community. Right. There's nobody out there saying, hey, you know, if you're going to spend money on Lightroom and you don't know it, mm-hmm. so you're going to go through a learning curve anyway, maybe right. you should be looking at Darktable. Right. Or you're going to spend money on Photoshop and you don't know it, maybe you should be looking at the GIMP. Right. And without that level of visibility, that has had some negative impact on the, on the widespread adoption of these really, really fine pieces of software. I don't know how that changes. I know when Zuzu was part of the Novell company, we made the decision. We were not going to use Microsoft Office anymore. Okay. Everybody's computer had open office on it. We tried to have everybody running Zuzu Linux, obviously. And it was very functional. It worked fine. What we found is that the customers, because they hadn't heard of it, right. weren't in a big hurry to go try something new. Sure. They were comfortable. It, what they had already paid for and already learned worked for them. Mm-hmm. And it was only when some customers were in a financial set of dire straits where they couldn't afford to license software anymore. Right. This happened with city governments a lot yes. back in the days. I mean, they were in serious dire straits, very fine people trying to do the best they could with no money to pay for software licensing. Suddenly open office become the, became the best possible solution. Right. Now, interestingly, there are other free software choices, like Google Docs. I was going to say that. No. So why do people like the Google solutions? Well, partly because they're free. Yep. But they also know about them because Google is an advertising company. Yes. They sell 
two advertisers. They are advertisers. Mm -hmm. And they do a very good job at it. Google isn't advertising somebody to use OpenOffice. They want your data and encourage you to use Google Docs. Right. Fair enough. But what I wish in an ideal world, more people would be exposed to the idea of open source software and could make whatever decision they want. If they chose never to use it, that's fair. Yep. But if they don't know, then maybe there's a potential for missing something. Sure. What is, uh, does this have implications for the longevity of programs like uh, Darktable? Uh, If if Microsoft is as aggressive as it is and... uh, and Mac is as aggressive as it, as it is, and then there's Google coming along as well. Uh, could this impact negatively on how long these programs will be around? They've been done pretty well so far, but again, like you said, I think with I, not too many people knowing about it. I think it it's, would be speculative yes, for, that, for me to guess, right. and I'm not a fan of speculation. Open source existed before... 90, 99% of the world knew that there was such a thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because the people working in it were committed. Right. They believed. And I, and I said it's a culture thing. Mm-hmm. It is a culture thing. Right. Can an open source project die? Yes, it can. Just like commercial software can mm-hmm. die. But commercial software tends to die because it can't be sold anymore. Open source projects die because the commitment of the people vanishes. Either the people may pass away, they could lose interest, they could hand on the reins to uh, another person or another organization, and that entity chooses not to continue because there is no revenue from it or marginal revenue from it. So I would say that open source software has as much risk as commercial software, but maybe less so in some cases because it's not driven by how much of it did we sell today. Sure. Okay. I mean, we've seen Google dump great projects because there was no revenue. Yeah. Right? And we've seen other software companies choose to not continue software because there was no need, no market benefit for doing so mm-hmm. like you and I are both Macintosh users iDVD disappeared quietly with no announcement right it was a great way to build replayable DVDs mm-hmm. and it's gone there is no facility to do that anymore with the titling and all that good mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. Maybe you can do it in iMovie, but it sure isn't as simple as IDVD was. And what's funny is there are still people out there looking for versions of IDVD to run. Yep. Because it did this job with elegance and capability and was easy to use. Right. There are open source options that will do what IDVD did. Or you can go out and you can buy commercial software. Right. Like in Macworld, Roxio Toast. That is still the killer application mm-hmm. to make your own DVDs and CDs. Right. 
except where do you play them on? Well, <laughs> there may be this audience that still yeah. needs that. I not I don't. Well, I, I, like, I guess you could make the equivalent of so that you just download it and carry on from there. So yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think streaming changes a lot for media in general. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, as a musician and a recording uh, engineer, allegedly, and an even more alleged music producer, what I can do today, even on this Windows box, compared to the Macs, which are in the studio, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely mm-hmm. stunning. For, you know, if I were... Well, I heard a great example today. Um, a different a differentiation in terms of getting music out. Hip art, hip hop artists will use a personal computer. Yep. With inexpensive software, may even come with the computer. Mm-hmm. Let's use GarageBand as an example. Mm-hmm. Really popular. I got a Mac with GarageBand. They record some tracks. They put in some loops. Boom, and then they save it and they put it up to their website or they post it on Instagram or wherever they do it. Right. You know, they got a few people together, they hung around, they did their song. Maybe they get another friend to come in and shoot a music video in their apartment. And they are finished and done with a new product for under a couple of grand and they'll generate revenue from that. Right. That's way different from the old way of going into the recording studio, spending fifty to $100,000 in the studio, having the label produce media, paying a radio station to play it, and getting it out there, and then by the time you recoup your costs, you may in fact be underwater. Yep. In that regard, the use of tools, you know, think about uh, as a photographer... Maybe if you reduce your cost of your tools, if you do sell your work, maybe you're making more money. Yep. So there could be there could be a viable consideration in that regard for going back to open source. Right. Does this make sense? Yep. So uh, what do you think we should uh, say to the person who asked us about making comments about Darktable? So I think it's a, a my conclusion would be. Darktable is a viable option. If you don't know any editing software, you're going to have a learning curve no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Even if you did, even if you did use software, you'd still have. You're still going to have a learning curve. It always goes on. I think it's a viable option, and if you're comfortable with a smaller, more focused community versus a much wider community and more trainers and more YouTube videos and more internet posts, then you're going to go with something commercial. But if you're okay learning yourself and working yourself and you don't want to pay or can't pay, you know, subscription fees until the end of time, tools like Darktable and the GIMP could be a really good option for you. In the end, they're just tools. Right. The photograph is still made three inches behind the camera. You know, you're not getting a better image out of Lightroom than you are at a dark table. The image is what it is. Right. 
the editing is what it is. The key is the photographer is still the one responsible. Sure. So, listeners, I hope that helps. At least maybe even, you know, if you're not an open source aficionado, gives you a sense what open source is about. If you choose to go down that path, good for you. If you say it's not the right path for you, good for you. You're right in every case because it's all about what you need. For the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, this has been episode 130. I'm Ross. I'm Gordon. And we will talk to you again soon.